Ellen one, right? That's how I. That's the proper terminology. Right, Mass Sergeant. Yeah, that's right. That's correct. Okay, so where where are you at right now? So I'm actually in Coronado, California. So uh, right, you know, just next to San Diego. Yeah. yeah so it's not bad. <laughs> it's not bad. Yeah, no, that can't be bad. That's quite probably one of the best places to be, right? Yeah, I was stationed here uh, when I my first, very first tour uh, before I was a league man. I was stationed here previously, so it was nice to come back because then you kind of already know the area, so it's uh, pretty easy to settle in. Right. Are you so? I re I was reading your bio, and we'll get a little bit mm -hmm. more into you know introductions, and so we can all kind of introduce ourselves and and, and, and start the conversation. Uh, but I was reading in your bio that you are assigned to, is it USS Theodore Roosevelt? The Roosevelt, right. Yeah, the so Roosevelt. I'm the LP, I'm the uh, leading petty officer. I'm the LPO for the Roosevelt. Uh, but as I think most people know, kind of what's going on with the ship right now, uh, I'm currently TAD to like the defense office here in San Diego. Uh, they'll be back here soon and I'll jump back on board. But yeah, they... Uh, it's been it's it's been pretty well well documented in the media some of the issues that have went on there. So oh just, no way you are you were is that with the COVID things? yeah people on yeah. board and uh, yeah yeah it was like eleven 1 hundred cases so and then we had uh, one of our personnel pass away so yeah. yep so that yeah so they kind of rotated some folks back uh, so I'm I'm doing. Uh, DSO defense service stuff now uh, in the southwest region, which is San Diego primarily uh, in California. Uh, so, yep, wait, just waiting for the ship to get back right now. Wow, that is uh, wow, that is super interesting. With the whole COVID, yeah, it's definitely been in the news. It's been well documented. Yeah. We won't get yeah. into the details or your, you know, yeah, perfect view. Probably or... not. <laughs> But that is, uh, that's interesting. Interesting. Thanks, Mastermind. Chief, so I know in the bio it says LNC. Do you go by LNC or do you go by Chief? Uh, Chief is fine. Okay, so Chief Greener. And you, do you work for Navy TJAC or TJAC for the Navy? Is that? Yep, so I kind of have two roles, our headquarters for Naval Legal Service Command and our Office of the Judge Advocate General are merged. Uh, so I have a role under OJAG, which is Knowledge Management, and a role under Navy Legal Service Command, which is Defense Paralegal Programs. All right, so you have access, because you said, oh yeah, I, I, I talked to our senior uh, paralegal manager about the podcast, and is it is it, who is it right now? Who's your senior paralegal manager? Uh, so it's Mass Chief Larkins. Uh, so there's only really five enlisted at headquarters for uh, OJAG. Uh, th four of them are legal men and one of them is a yeoman. Gotcha. And you have easy access to that person. Yeah, I mean, we talk pretty much like every day. If not every day, every other day. Nice. <clears throat> See, that's cool. So we've got the right people on this podcast, I think. <laughs> all right so um we have sergeant graciano and she's gonna bring uh, a lot of interesting perspectives from the air force side as well uh because one of them is that she's a pipeliner and 
and she can speak to that, especially for those that are listening um, from the Navy, just to offer her perspective as to what it means to come straight into the Air Force or her first job being a paralegal job. And she's been defense uh, and she's, she was stationed at one of the busiest bases, in, if not the busiest bases, base in the Air Force. Uh, and she's also currently heading a, a military justice as the non-commissioned officer in charge. So uh, really interesting uh, about this discussion. And I'm going to try for her to do most of the talking um, <laughs> uh, just because I want her perspective to be out there. But I was so excited to get this together um, and to make sure that, you know, we, we receive the Navy perspective uh, for our community. Because every time that I've deployed, oh, and that's another thing that I forgot to mention about Sergeant Graciano. She's deploying here next month. Um, so she's more than likely going to be working with, uh, with the Navy as well. Every time that I've deployed, I've deployed with the Navy. So when I, was, when I went to Iraq in 2009 to 2010, we had some legal men in the office and some of the attorneys were from the Navy as well. Actually, our, our commander, so who was the equivalent of a staff judge advocate of the SJA, was a reservist uh, commander. And it, I think he worked for the attorney's uh, district office or something. He was like a special attorney as well in the civilian side. And uh, my roommate was a master at arms. So he was an MA2 in Iraq. And then we had some, uh, some administrative uh, individuals as well from the Navy. And that was just in Iraq. And then when I went to Afghanistan, same thing. Uh, we had a lot, of, a lot of attorneys that were from the Navy. And our head... Uh, SJA or legal advisor to General Dunsford because this was when General Dunsford was in Afghanistan uh, was Captain McCarthy. So, and I know he's he's like a legend in the in the in the Navy <laughs> Jack community. Um, so this is you know the reason why I wanted to do this because you know just so we, we can get some more familiarization with what you do um, and everything like that. So. We'll start with some introductions, right? So if you just want to go ahead and tell me a little bit, a little bit about yourselves, and we'll take it from there. Ellen, one of you want to go ahead? Uh, yeah, Chief, thanks. Thanks, Mass Sergeant. Thanks for having me. Uh, so Ellen, one Brian Fox. Uh, I originally, I came to the Navy on 2012 uh, timeframe. Uh, I came in, uh, my previous rate or job uh, was uh, primarily dealt with navigation. And I was on a destroyer for four years, the USS Kidd. Uh, then I, uh, what we called cross-rated or converted uh, to legalman uh, in 2016. Uh, left school in 2017, went to Sigonella, Sicily, uh, where I worked at uh, the base there as the LPO of the uh, legal shop. Is primarily staff judge advocate work and some foreign criminal jurisdiction stuff and legal assistance. Uh, from there, I was there for about two and a half years. Then I came over to the USS Theodore Roosevelt Aircraft Carrier, CVN-71. Uh, I've been there since June. Uh, currently deployed, uh, I just uh, detached uh, for about a month uh, and came over to uh, the Defense Service Office West, which is based in San Diego, California. And that's where I'm currently stationed. Uh, but my primary command is the USS Theodore Roosevelt. Awesome. So what do some of your duties entail while you were at the, uh, at the Roosevelt? So uh, 
a big part of our job has to do with um, kind of the good order and discipline side of the ship. Uh, so we actually work, you know, we have the makeup of the office is the department head is a judge, uh, is a lieutenant commander. Then we'll have a mini judge uh, who's a lieutenant. Uh, then we'll have a DLCPO or LCPO, which is usually a chief or a senior chief. Then a an LPO, which is a first class petty officer, um, an E6. Uh, and then you'll usually have uh, two to three LN2s uh, or LN3s that may you know, advance while there. A uh, big part of our job uh, is doing, I, I believe the Air Force would call Article 15s. So for us, non-judicial punishments, kind of working that side of it to include investigations, working with security, uh, working with the chains of command. Because uh, at the departmental level, that's really us. We're kind of the conduit uh, between uh, the head of those departments, the, you know, the E9s, their master chiefs, and the, uh, and the, com- and the commanding officer through our judge. So. That's a big part of it. We do a lot of legal assistance too, uh, deployment work for, from notaries to power of attorneys. We'll even try to do some wills uh, if we have the time. Uh, that's not as common, but we try to bend over backwards, especially for deploying uh, personnel. And then we kind of work with the stripe group that's a part of the ship uh, as well that deploys with us. And again, we're the conduit for uh, the strike group legal aspect and the our commanding officer's legal uh, needs uh so that's that's just kind of a snapshot uh but that's on top of the regular sailor stuff right so on a ship you're always having to do a bunch of other stuff uh that's interesting in its own right so all right so we'll definitely go more in depth with all the things that happens on a ship or other things that happen on a fleet uh, because i'm definitely uh, i think we're interested about what happens on there but uh, you mentioned that the air force calls it article 15s but you all have a really cool name for article 15s uh, what is that? So there's captain's mast, uh, but actually captain's mast kind of comes threefold. Uh, if it's non-judicial punishment is what we actually call, if you go to captain's mast and you're awarded punishment, so the punishment is tied to mast. But we have like meritorious mast, like for awards and stuff. Or you can actually request captain's mast. If you really want to talk the, to the CO, you can request it. It's not always granted, but you can request it. <laughs> But is it commonly referred to? So if someone's getting an Article 15, do they say, oh, man, I got captain's mask or, like, oh, man, yeah. I'm getting it? Yeah. It's there, to people that are not, aren't, aren't in the legal realm, they're used interchangeably. You'll hear NJP. But most of the time, honestly, the, the, you'll just hear I'm going to mask. <laughs> that's, that's what you'll hear. So, uh, And it's usually not with a very happy face. That's for sure. Right, right, right. See, we need to come up with some cool like that in the Air Force, I think. like Yeah, the, the Army calls it uh, UCMJ. Like, you got UCMJ. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm like, what? You got UCMJ? <laughs> and that's such a wide range of things that you can get from UCMJ. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is interesting. But now with Space Force, like, we can come up with some kinds of cool stuff. You know what I mean? Like, we can call it, like, a lunar you know, session, some sort of Star Wars like reference. I don't know, but the possibilities are endless. So we can, that's so that, dark. you know, that's right. So that we don't make it sound, you know, just a, a fun spin to it. But all right. Well, thank you, um, Ellen Juan, for being here. Uh, uh, Thanks I'm for sure having We're going to learn a lot from your perspective. So, all right, Chief Greener, what you got? 
All right, so uh, my name is Chief Greener. So I'm currently stationed here in our headquarters in DC at the Office of the Judge Advocate General and Commander Navy Legal Service Plan. Uh, joined in 2008, uh, originally a nuclear electrician's mate, and then converted over to a uh, legal man in 2010. Uh, from Naval Justice School, I started our legal man paralegal education program, which is our mandatory associate's degree that we're required to get uh, as a paralegal. And then from that in-resident semester, I departed and went to the USS George Washington CBN-73 for uh, deployed in Yokosuka, Japan. I spent three years there, uh, then continued uh, back to the States and was stationed at Region Legal Service Office Mid-Atlantic in Norfolk, uh, where I served in the trial department, uh, and then later at the Staff Judge Advocate's Office for the uh, Navy region for the Mid-Atlantic area. Uh, from there, I came up here to headquarters. All right, nice. And there is an interesting uh, fact about you as well, as far as your interaction with the Air Force and with the Air Force Jack School, right? Yep. Yep. Uh, about two years ago, uh, 2018, I actually went through your uh, law office manager's course uh, down there at uh, Maxwell Air Force Base. Pretty awesome course. Uh, got to hear from your senior paralegal manager and your JAG and DJAG and met a lot of great uh, airmen that you guys have uh, within your ranks. Awesome. So I know you're familiar when we, were, when we were talking on the phone, you were throwing all these, you know, we're familiar with AFLOA and all these terms that I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not just talking with a regular, you know, just a regular chief. He knows his business. He knows his Air Force lingo. Yeah, it's definitely a, a different, uh, take on things but a lot we have a lot of similarities we just call them different things and sergeant graciano if you please uh just want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience in the air force so far sure so um i'm technical sergeant amanda graciano um i joined the air force in 2012 um, when I came into the Air Force, I was actually an open general contract, meaning I didn't have a job coming in. Um, one of the options that I had when I was doing my job choice was paralegal. Um, and then a little bit about our selection process. So I was brought into our career advisement section of the BMT Processing Center and they were like, so you had paralegal on your selections. Um, there's an interview process and a biography you have to do in a typing test. If you do the interview process, you're foregoing all your other choices. So if you don't get picked, you're going to get whatever, you know, is left over. But if you do get picked, I mean, you'll get picked. So I was like, Ooh, this is, it was a big decision for me then because I didn't know if I wanted to do paralegal, um, but I decided to go ahead and go forward with the interview process. It was a lot easier than I thought. Um, I grew up military, so I kind of understood a little bit of the lingo and things they were asking me. Fortunately enough, I got picked. So um, I went to tech school, which um, that's what we call a technical training, the paralegal apprentice course. The first course we take in our, I guess, first training we have to become a paralegal in the Air Force. So every paralegal in the Air Force will go through this course. 
Um, it's a, now it's a, I want to say 16 week course. Um, when I went through it, it was an eight week course. Um, and then my first base I was stationed at was the Lackland base legal office. Um, I was there for a little over two and a half years before I got picked up to become a defense paralegal. Um, and then I just PCA. So I moved over into the defense office at Lackland and was there for three and a half years a lot longer than I was supposed to, but that's the way. It and then I PCS here to Shaw Air Force Base where I'm at currently here in South Carolina. Um, I started out as the non-commissioned officer in charge of adverse actions, which is non-judicial punishments, demotions, LORs, that type of administrative paperwork and discharges. And then I moved into the NCIC of military justice position early last year, um, which I'm doing now before and then I'll deploy next month. So been in a little over eight years, only been a paralegal. So this is all I know. So, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you also for joining us in this call. Um, I look forward to the perspective as well. Um, so let's get started with one of the main questions uh, that we have is how does one become a Navy legal man. So the first step uh, to become a legal man is you actually have to already be in the Navy. So we don't recruit from the civilian population like the other services do. And that's a bit of a leftover from our creation back in the 70s. Uh, originally our rating, uh, rating is another word for job title. Our, our rating, the legal man rating was created uh, as a position requiring E5 and above. Uh, and then later on, they lowered it down to E4. Uh, today, uh, we have uh, openings for, or conversion opportunities rather, for personnel that are E3 and above. Uh, so E3, E4, E5, and then E6 is only on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, we don't allow conversions for anybody E7 and above uh, into our rating, but um, essentially what that, makes us do as a, a community uh, kind of traces back to diversity. So as, as you may know, in the military, diversity is one of the strengthening characteristics of our, our force. Uh, and having a team that can contribute in different ways based on their different cultures or background, uh, that you know helps to create a more cohesive and lethal team. Uh, so this kind of makes us take it one step further by requiring a diversity of experience on the enlisted side. Uh, so that's one of the advantages since we kind of operate on a peer side model for legal services, there's not a lot of opportunity for judge advocates uh, to be or in a unit that goes to sea. Uh, we only have a handful of uh, billets that are seagoing billets for our judge advocates. Whereas the enlisted, chances are they've either gone to sea or been, been with an air, aviation squadron or construction battalion or even embedded with marines uh, for for those corpsmen that we have um, so this helps us bring in that diversity of the fleet institutional knowledge uh, and it, it's kind of most helpful in fixing one of our obvious flaws of not being able to go out to sea with, with, with the judge advocates uh, so essentially that's the start of it um, so once somebody's decided to become a legal man, uh, there are some prerequisites, just like your career field has. Uh, some of our prerequisites 
basically revolve around uh, education. So uh, they have to complete a, a certain amount of uh, computer-based training, basically brings them on par with uh, a yeoman, which is our administrative clerk. Uh, then there is a requirement for English 101 and 102 for college level English, but it, it is waivable. Uh, if somebody just had not had the opportunity to achieve that education prior to converting, uh, after they've completed all the prerequisites uh, and minimum ASVAB requirements, uh, then they're screened by a selection board, uh, which basically they'll ask them questions about their character, uh, their work ethic, et cetera, similar to the conversion boards that you, or retraining boards that your community does. Uh, once that board is concluded, they make a recommendation, which comes up here to the senior enlisted advisor to the JAC. Uh, she makes her recommendation and that's forwarded to Navy Personnel Command. Uh, after that, if they're approved, then they'll get orders to Naval Justice School and continue. That seems uh, <laughs> extensive. <laughs> A lot of information. <laughs> you gotta like really want to do it to go through the entire process to become a paralegal in the Navy. Yes, you do. I mean, when you get somebody that comes into your office and says they want to be a legal man, as they go through the process, you see how motivated they are. And that's the kind of person we want in our community is somebody that's truly motivated to get what they want uh, and are willing to do what is required to, uh, to do it. Uh, one of the things we usually notice, especially on our ship units or ship-based units, um, is if they have an opportunity to get a warfare device, uh, which on our uniforms, Essentially, it's something like that. It's similar to what you guys wear in your uniform, uh, but we have surface, aviation, submarine warfare. Um, but if they have one of those pins or every pin that they've had the opportunity to get, uh, that's kind of indicative that they're very motivated and they're willing to, to do what it takes. Well, I, we have, um, as far as, us wanting to become paralegals, it used to be the same as far as it had to be a retrainee, but then it changed, and I believe it changed around 2002, 2003. I don't have the full uh, of data. Do you know Sergeant Graciano? Or like a, I think 2004. 2004. Like a uh, full pipeline uh, class. Right. So, but for our retrainees, it works a little bit a little bit different because it's either in their thirty six month window, or if they sign for four years for a four year enlistment, or in their forty eight month or fifty fifty six month if they sign for six years. So, um, they're essentially staff sergeants by that time. So, I'm a little bit curious about if you're saying that you're allowing uh, essentially petty officer third class now. To, to to cross into you know switch ratings or then how soon can they apply then to be a legal I mean in my experience I've seen people that were so we we have had as juniors E3 uh, or or just barely made E4 uh, one of actually the people I converted was just barely made E4 uh, before they left for justice school uh, but you can convert as, I mean, as early as being in the Navy for a year or two or three years. 
um, myself personally, I, I converted at the three-year mark. Uh, how about you, Ellen? One. Uh, yeah, Chief. So I was actually at uh, about f- four years, like three and a half years, and you know, and because I the size of the ship that I was on, I didn't even not not all of our our surface platforms, especially have legal men, uh, as Chief kind of alluded to before. Uh, there's not a legal men. There's not a billet on every ship. Uh, for every job. So Legalman's one of those things that's usually just on the bigger ships. Uh, so I, I didn't really have a lot of knowledge about it. I had to look into it. And yeah, like uh, uh, tech sergeant said, like I, it's, you got to be a little motivated to get, <laughs> to get your packet together. Cause it's not a whole lot different than if you, you know, apply for like an officer package or an officer program. It's really, it's really not that different. Uh, there's a lot of background that goes into it. So um, and, I, and I just add that a lot of people when they get, if they do get selected or prior to getting selected, um, they'll do what we call OJT, so on-job training, and that's one of the great parts of our this rate is that it's, there's a lot of peer-to-peer, peer-level review, right? So if somebody like, hey, I, I want to do this, I want to convert, and they're you know given the opportunity to come train in a legal shop, especially on a ship, you'll see this a lot. That leading petty officer, that E6 that's in charge of that shop, is going to have a big voice. Uh, when they go up to the conversion board about like, hey, I think this person could really work out. I think they could succeed or, hey, to be truthful with you, there's some areas they need to work on. Uh, and that might be something you want to bring up their plan in the conversion board. Uh, so one of, the, one of the good things about our community, while it is small, uh, I think at the very top, uh, they, they have pretty open ears about what the more junior person will have to say about how we work uh, our conversion uh, process, which is which has been great because not not many jobs in the military allow for that so yeah so we have something like very similar so anybody we call it cross training so anybody that is already of course looking to cross train into becoming a paralegal we have the interview process and they do the typing test but we also have a 10-day observation period they're required to do so they'll actually come into the office um they'll schedule this up they're here this is their alternate duty location Um, and we try to involve them as much as possible. We're a little restricted because, um, we have OJT tasks we're required to be signed off on before we can perform certain duties within the office. So we're a little restricted on what they can actually do. Um, but for the most part, you know, observe our job, see if it's something really do us to get to know them, to make our recommendations. So. Um, they'll actually do an interview with our statute advocate and then our law office superintendent, who is our E7E8 in our office. Um, and then they will make their recommendation to the Air Force Personnel Center, or I think it goes, does it go up to MAGCOM before? Uh, do you know, Sergeant Press? I believe it does. I just got back from the career field myself in this role, so... Um. But I believe so, it does. It goes up to the management. Yeah, it goes up to another reviewing authority, and then they'll make their decision on whether or not they would like the person to cross train into the career field. Um, a lot of times, most of the people that we're getting um, are people being forced to retrain out of their jobs. So their position either has too many personnel in it, um, they need more of another rank, so they have too much of that rank, and they haven't made another rank to either stay. So a lot of times they're like, I have no idea what you guys do. I don't even know if this is something I want to do. Sometimes people just kind of get thrown in this. So that observation period is a good buffer time for us to kind of weed out the ones that may not be that good of a fit or kind of 
let others see that, oh, wow, this is something that I really am interested in and I'd like to do. So a little similar, but not similar. <laughs> yeah. And I, I have some other questions uh, about your process. So uh, one is, is there any discussion about it being open to brand new uh, sailors, right? People just joining the air, uh, the Navy. And then second, because um, you mentioned uh, Ellen one that you had to essentially do the research yourself that you didn't even know about the legal, uh, the legal career field. So is it, how is it advertised then throughout the Navy? Uh, so chief, you don't mind, I'll take the second part if you want to take the first part um, to, to your question about like how I found out about it was honestly through uh, a, a friend of mine, a shipmate of mine uh, that was also interested in it. Uh, and I kind of looked at what it was in law school was something I'd always, I'd looked at, I'd taken the LSATs, I'd done that kind of thing. Uh, but I also liked uh, kind of the interaction I had in my enlisted life. So Ellen was a good fit for me. Uh, but yeah, so I had to work with uh, essentially what we'd call, well, it's an NC. So we'd call it a Navy career counselor or, you know, a counselor, career counselor. Uh, and they kind of walked me through the process, but I was very much like, hey, what's the instruction? Get in the instruction. Hey, this is what I need to do. Um, and and what, as long as you have access to your record, it's not difficult. Uh, but what you will see sometimes is, is people, it's uh, kind of gets stuck in the weeds a little bit about what's actually required. So that's why for us, it's always good to work with a, a legal shop, which I ended up doing. I went to Real So Southwest to the trial shop at the time and spoke with the chief there. And he kind of pointed me like, yeah, this is this is the advice you got. But here's here's really the best way to do it. And he was incredibly helpful. Uh, and m everyone in the community is if you come and you're seriously interested in doing it, they'll they'll get you where you need to go uh, or certainly show you the right direction to head anyway. So uh, but yeah, for me, for me, it was just research based. And then, hey, I'm, my enlistment's almost up. Do I want to stay in the Navy? Yes, I want to stay in the Navy. Do I want to keep doing the job I'm doing? Uh, maybe. But are there any other op are there other options that I could look at? And Legaman was certainly one of them, and uh, that's what I chose to go with. So, and I I got picked up. Yeah. So Anya, your first question uh, of whether or not uh, there's any talk about you know opening it up to uh, just recruit into it. I mean, we're always looking to improve, and we're we're always evaluating how we're doing our recruiting process. Uh, right now, we're we're hitting our recruiting numbers pretty well. Uh, you know, a year ago now, not so much, uh, but we're we're always looking at our process. Uh, back when we were first created, like I said, we started at E5 and above, and then slowly we realized we had a need for some uh, junior sailors in our ranks, uh, kind of a task to talent, if you will. Um, if, if you have two, two senior people doing uh, junior level tasks, it, it kind of hurts the morale. So there is, a, um, you know, some added benefit to having more junior folks because we get to keep them a little bit longer, too. Uh, so if, if we were to have somebody come in as an E1 to E3 uh, or even convert earlier in their career, uh, then we would be able to keep them a little bit longer. So there are benefits uh, to it. There's also concerns as well, as far as, uh, you know, if you're getting somebody straight out of civilian life, you don't really know how they're gonna handle military life uh, and what they're gonna be like in, in that type of uh, environment. Uh, so there are some 
pros and cons, but you know, the doors never shut uh, until somebody actually says no. Uh, as far as that that decision, uh, which it hasn't happened yet, it's always a it's always a point of conversation of whether or not we're doing it right. Uh, as far as uh, you know, advertising out there, uh, some of the you know ships, the the smaller ships like uh, Ellen one mentioned, destroyers and cruisers and whatnot. There's really not a legal presence on board. There's a legal officer who's usually a line officer who happened to have training. Uh, from our Naval Justice School on legal office uh, officer duties. Uh, it's really a collateral duty. It's not their primary duty, and it usually rotates among junior officers. Uh, so making those enlisted personnel aware in those types of units, as well as submarine and some squadrons, uh, that we exist is kind of hard. Uh, so we do some outreach events, uh, usually regionally, uh, and some of them we've hosted online as well. Uh, to get the word out about our community. Uh, for example, like me, uh, when I converted, I was in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, and there are two LN1s on the base, uh, but they weren't in my unit. Uh, and the only reason I discovered the legal men community when I was deciding what I wanted to convert to uh, was my chief at the time happened to be dating uh, LN1. Uh, and so when she would come into the office, she'd say who she was, and I was like, Ellen, what is that? And then she'd start telling me about it. I'm like, you know, I was, I was thinking between going Master at Arms and Yeoman, uh, Master at Arms being military police and Yeoman being administrative. Uh, and then I realized legal men existed. And I'm like, that's what I want to do. Uh, that's exactly what I want to do. And ever since, I've, I've been happy. haven't looked back. Awesome. Yeah, we, uh, we've just reached a, a, a huge milestone in the Air Force with the recruiting part and with allowing or recruiting members uh, from being civilian and already coming in with a guaranteed job. So, you know, it's, it's come a long way from 17 years ago. So we'll see, you know, we'll see how that goes. It's definitely going to be interesting, but there's still going to be an interview process with that. Um, so there's still a process. So it's not like, oh, the recruiter, hey, here's this job available. Here you go. You're now paralegal. So there's going to be some requirements that they're going to have to go to their nearest Air Force base and, and, and interview with the law office superintendent still or equivalent um, to to get that job. So, okay, so I think we are good to go on how you become uh, a legal man in the Navy. So interesting process. Do you have any questions for us as, as far any additional questions as far as how the process? Um, I don't. I learned one to you. I think you're on view, Ellen. One. All right, that'll probably work better then. All right. Um, yeah, I don't. It's it sounds very similar to kind of the nuts and bolts in it aren't that different, with the exception obviously when you come in. So yeah, it's it's not the interview process doesn't seem all that different. Yeah, I just think like. Um, just something you mentioned about, um, you know, the experience level is something that you guys look for for um, when they're, you know, changing over to legal men is like, you know, being on ships before and kind of just having that experience. One of the bad reps that us um, pipelines uh, paralegals get is that we don't have Air Force experience, uh, which I think the complete opposite. I might be biased. I probably am. But I think I actually get 
a lot different experience because I get to see all of our mission sets from an outside perspective. Like I may not be in there doing the day-to-day job, but because we work with so many different commanders and units, um, we really get to learn, you know, uh, those different like aspects of the Air Force. Um, But yeah, like a lot of, of the older paralegals who cross trained into they're like yeah but you don't have you don't have air force life experience you don't i'm like well does anybody when they first come into any job (laughs) nobody does nobody has air force experience why is our job any different but yeah that's just one of the bad reps that we get as pipeliners is we don't have life experience in the air force yeah, I, I can certainly see it. I mean, when I joined uh, or converted to Legalman, yeah, I'd been in for three years, but I really hadn't been anywhere. Um, you know, I'd been to school and I was temporarily assigned to our personnel uh, support detachment. Uh, so I had a little bit of exposure. Uh, but I mean, even then, uh, I didn't really, you know, I didn't know how to put out a fire on a ship. I didn't know how to navigate a ship. If somebody told me, you know, that's how life works, I, be, I wouldn't know any different. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, when I, when I got to my first unit, like my chief and my judge advocates were really able to kind of like mold what was, what was important or I needed to know uh, to help them out. So I can see like the pros and cons to both. Uh, I think it's something that we should always look into. Absolutely. So good. Um, so the, the next question that, that I have is, you know, where does this training take place? So how, you know, okay, so now you've been, you go through this board and you tell them why you're so, such a great fit to be a legal man. And they say, all right, there you go. You're going to be a legal man. Now what happens? So uh, our, our legal man accession course is held at Naval Justice School in Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, it's about 11 weeks long, uh, but you do receive permanent change of station orders to go there uh, because immediately upon graduation uh, of the Legal Men Sessions course, you do one semester in resident with Roger Williams University uh, t- towards your associate's degree. Uh, so we do, we do have a mandatory degree requirement for all of our personnel within a few years of converting over. Uh, and part of that degree requirement is you have to have in-resident uh, classes completed for the university to award the degree. Uh, so they do that in Newport, Rhode Island, right after their uh, initial training. Uh, so it ends up being that you're at Justice School for about eight months, uh, depending on which part of the year you uh, move into. That seems like such a, an investment for the Navy. Like not that it's negative. I didn't want that to sound negative, but that they I feel they put a lot into your guys' education, which I think the Air Force does for us too, but a lot of our educational courses are Air Force run. They're run by our JAG schools. So that's pretty awesome. Right. Yeah. One of the one of the big advantages of that school too, uh, is that so the first it's kind of broken up into thirds, right? So the first piece is kind of the, the enlisted the chiefs and to there's also Marines there, which is helpful, right? So you kind of get that that interaction as well. So you get, you know, the chiefs uh, and senior enlisted folks really teaching you kind of the, the mill just kind of SGA basics. 
Then you go into some of the college level courses uh, with attorneys, both Marine and Navy. Then you go to, uh, as Chief was talking about, the, the big Roger Williams piece um, is, is normally instructed by judges uh, that work there in Providence or wherever. And you'll go to court uh, a few times. You'll see all that kind of stuff. So uh, what's nice about it is it's not just military centric. Uh, you get kind of a, a, a broader perspective or at least a bit broader perspective of what a paralegal would do outside of the military, which uh, in what would a judge expect of a paralegal if, if you worked for a judge, uh, a civilian judge? Uh, so that's, yeah, they, they, the Navy definitely invests quite a bit. Uh, and that's why I think the conversion process yeah. is, is so involved and, and maybe part of the reason why we're as small as we are, because to, to get there, they want to make sure that, you know, you, you're the right person for the job. So, uh, but yeah, it's an investment. Setting you all up if it's something that you aspire to do, like outside of the military, like if you don't, you know, finish out your contract even in the Navy, but you know, you kind of have like that background and that degree to help you out, and it like really does set you up for success on the civilian side. So that's it's pretty awesome. Now it totally goes hand in hand with your selection process. Now it makes a lot more sense. That's cool. <laughs> that's cool. Yep. And we get our money's worth out of it too. You know, uh, we, we do require a service obligation uh, to, you know, 36 months after you go to school. Uh, so we, we try and get our return on investment. Uh, and for the most part, uh, people stay in the rating and continue on to 20 uh, or just shy of 20, uh, whatever, it, you know, their own life's circumstances warrant. Uh, yeah. Do you guys get a bonus? Uh, we don't. Um, so at the moment, we don't really have a need for uh, a retention bonus uh, because of our turnover rate. Uh, there was talk in the comprehensive review of the uniform legal services communities for the Navy Marine Corps of having a performance-based uh, performance bonus type thing uh, or incentive pay of some sort. Uh, but, but at the moment, we don't have one. So you do, um, new legal man goes to training, goes to the Naval Justice School in Rhode Island, and then they go to Rogers Williams University and, and take those courses as well. And do you, you don't leave out of, out of there with a degree, with an associate, or do you? Um, most people don't. Uh, some people have college completed before the Navy, or maybe as part of their prior rating, or they get really close. and. They only have to do one or two more classes. Uh, that, that's kind of how my situation was. I only had three more classes I needed to take after I left Roger Williams. Uh, but because I went to a ship uh, that was particularly undermanned, I didn't complete it right away. Uh, it took me a little bit longer to do, uh, but still within the time, time frame, of course. Uh, but it, it just depends on the individual and how much education they've already done. Wow. So you could potentially go to what we call tech school, do your eight months. And before you even go to your first assignment to go there with an associate's degree in paralegal studies. Yep. That's quite possible. Yep. There's a lot of people in my the class that I was in that I actually already had bachelor's degrees and that because they had that previous experience or like Chief said, their previous rate school, uh, they got to roll some of those credits in together uh, and they were done with it 
the day they the day they left that they had their 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 additional associates off to their first command. So, Sergeant Graciano, did you want to kind of talk about how our CCAF um, process goes in our tech school as well? Sure. Um, so we don't have like a mandatory uh, associates program, but we have an Air Force wide CCAF program. Um, it's the Community College of the Air Force. Um, so much it allows airmen to, um, you know, collaborate with different schools. You can pretty much go wherever you want. Um, and then the Air Force will award you an associate's degree um, in your career field specialty um, after you take certain courses um, and then obtain all the credits. So for the paralegal career field, we have required credits that we get out of basic training. Um, so like physical education, um, just mili general military education, and then our paralegal apprentice course, which is our first level of training that gives us our paralegal basic general knowledge um, credits. And then when we are becoming seven level paralegals, so once you um, make E5, you go back to school um, to get seven levels so we have skill levels three five seven and nine um so we actually go back to school for eight more weeks and then there are um certain credits at seven level school that we're required to get for our degree program and then on top of that you have english speech all of those other credits that you'd right. get from a different you know community college university um wherever you plan to go um that you do and then we have a system that tracks all of that for us and then once you complete your credits um you get your degree so mine's right there <laughs> but yeah so it's pretty cool just it's not mandatory it's completely optional um it's something that the air force does look for when you're promoting especially into those senior nco ranks because they want to see that you have you know full airman concept you're doing more than just coming to work and doing your job so Right. It is. Um, it is now mandatory for I believe E eight and E nine. Uh, you have to have your your community college of the Air Force degree in, in your specialty. Uh, so you gotta have that, or you don't have to have that specifically. You can have that or uh, an associate's degree. So it doesn't have to be necessarily. But if you have an associate's degree, you're more than likely already <laughs> going to qualify to get the CCAF as well. Um, so. So let's talk about now upgrade training real quick. So legal men and then eight months and now you go into your first assignment. And how does that look like? Because we have uh, uh, what we call career development courses. So they are like we call CDCs and they're books that we have to study. Um, you know, it's like we have four volumes and it's one volume per month that you have to essentially pass. And one is in military justice, another one in general law, another one it's in like just the judge, judge, judge advocate general court in general and claims. So uh, what does that look like for the Navy? Oh, on, did you want to start this one? Oh, you, you can go ahead, Chief. I'll, I'll, I'll jump on after. Uh, so we don't necessarily have a, a system that's really very similar to yours. Um, so we, we kind of put an emphasis on our legal men being able to operate independently uh, very early on, uh, just primarily that's that's just how the Navy's designed. Uh, I mean, if you go and you're deployed on a ship, uh, and if you 
aren't aware of your job or don't know how to do your job and the internet is cut off uh, due to whatever operational requirements, uh, you have no ability to reach back to anybody. Uh, so the system we have in place is called personnel qualification standards and it covers our entire rating. Uh, so it goes into administrative law, legal assistance, military justice, uh, which both non-judicial punishment and courts martial, uh, and then some host of other issues like ethics. Uh, but that's an entire book. Uh, it, it, it's pretty thick and arduous to go through, but we require it for all of our personnel under five years in the rating. Uh, we do have some career milestone courses that are required. Uh, so we have a mid-level legalman course, which is usually completed uh, at the LN2 or E5 range, uh, sometimes E6s, depending on when they converted, uh, either at the latter end of their first tour or uh, beginning to middle of their second tour. Um, after that course, uh, we do have the senior LN course, uh, which is for all personnel that were selected for chief petty officer. Uh, and that's another career milestone. Uh, and then we do have two other specialty courses uh, for legal men that are assigned to military justice litigation billets. Uh, so that's our paralegal litigation support course, uh, which is a pretty basic course. It just focuses on military justice and the courts martial process and how we can best serve our attorneys as paralegals. And then we have a litigation law office managers course, which is designed for E7 and above who are assigned to litigation billets as well. Um, but primary uh, ability or evaluation of the ability of an individual legal man is usually done by the supervising attorney or, or paralegal that works with them uh, through individual tasks and their ability to complete those tasks. Uh, it's not necessarily signed off in a master system, if you will, aside from the PQS. Alan Wong? Uh, yeah, Chief. Yeah, so... Um because we have all these naval justice schools, so we well, we have a few of them right across across the country, but kind of the the, the home the home base is is Newport, Rhode Island. Um, but there's other the the JAC Corps is really good about, especially with uh, on the enlisted side of getting uh, people that have the time and commands that'll support it into other courses. So you can even do like there's like a staff judge advocate course that you can take, uh, you know, time permitting, and uh, they're pretty. Commands are usually supportive of that because we're such a small rate and there's not a you know, there's not a ton of us. Sometimes you have to sit down with you know your your leadership and say like, here's so we what we call it a learning and development roadmap. It's the, the acronym's ladder. So I don't know if they we'll have to, I don't know if, if the Air Force has those or not. It's essentially like your training roadmap for how you get to the next uh, pay grade. So for us, it's very detailed about what the expectation is. Like if you're an E5, this is what you should be doing. If you're an E6 and you want to make E7, this is what you need to be doing. Uh, these are the qualifications uh, and maybe previous uh, experiences that that we're going to require of you, right? Um, that's that's incredibly helpful because I know most of our senior leaderships they'll they'll say like that gives you the answer to the test right there. If you want to advance and you want to be trained how you're supposed to be trained look at that ladder and then follow up and make sure that expectation is being met. So there it's, it's, it's pretty laid out. The career path is, is fairly laid out, which, which most people are going to stay in for 20 years greatly appreciate because that's not always true. So. So interesting. <laughs> it's like a whole different world. I just, I feel like 
um, in the Air Force, I mean, your job performance and all that, which is what they're trying to highlight and move to these days, is your job performance outweighing your ability to take a test on Air Force knowledge. Um, so now our enlisted ratings weigh more than, you know, your test scores would when before it was vice versa, your test scores. So you take a, you know, a job knowledge test and then an Air Force knowledge test. And before those two tests combined would outweigh your enlisted performance reports, which obviously have all the bullets that, you know, this is what I did in the last year. This is all the great things I've done. Um, but now they've changed it. So, and we have different promotion ratings and stuff. So we don't, I would say we don't really actually have anything that, you know, lays it out. Like this is what you, we have the enlisted court structure that tells us what each rank, what you're expected to do. Um, but for the most part, it really goes into, you know, studying for your test and doing well at your job and working hard to get good promotion ratings to move to the next rank. So that's pretty cool. Like, like yeah, we, we do the tests too. Yeah. So you still, we still, we do the advancement exams and all that. And you're, there's points from your evals, like you were talking about your work performance. So all that mm -hmm. kind of gets, uh, kind of gets blended together but yeah up until after you if, if you promote to e7 after that you're not having to take exams anymore obviously but uh yeah before that like e6 is every year every, every time you're about to take an advancement exam it's a big deal right <laughs> it's a big yeah, deal for us everybody. Too. but yeah. they just did away with testing for e7 and up so yeah same here they did yeah. i don't know the last time they did it for us actually chief might remember but uh if they ever, if they ever, um, I don't, I don't think we ever have, because uh, when the senior chief uh, grade was created, uh, there wasn't a test for it. It was just a board. Uh, so, yeah, I don't think we've ever had that for E eight and nine uh, that that I am aware of. Uh, but uh, you know, one of the weird things about our rate, uh, which is it's ironic because you wouldn't this situation never arises. Uh, but we have no E4 exam because there's no such thing as an E3 LN. Uh, so we're one of the only communities that doesn't have an E4 exam. So there's only an exam for E5 and E6 and E7. Uh, but it, it is just kind of weird. Like, what if a legal man, like, just happened to get reduced? It wasn't a big deal. It was enough of them to go to the captain's mask. But how would they ever make E4 again? Uh, and we've never had to run into that situation, but it's just kind of one of those ironic things to think about. Uh, you know, what, what if? <laughs> yeah. well, we don't we... test for E4, so. Oh, yeah, no, we don't. It's just a time and service uh, requirement you have to meet. And obviously, you can't get in trouble and all that, but it's like you're on probation for two and a half years until you meet, get E4, so. Sure, there's a lot of people in the Navy that wish there was just no yeah. work. <laughs> there is a so large yeah. contingent so that would hope for that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Do you guys open up your courses to other sister services? Uh, we do. Um, so, and uh, there's a lot of our courses. Um, like, for example, our uh, paralegal litigation support course. Uh, when I first started helping with that course, uh, we had quite a few Air Force personnel come over. Uh, and that's actually when I went out to your uh, law office manager's course. Uh, we we're kind of, you know, taking turns who, who sends who. Uh, 
So we do have some courses that are that are open. It's basically you know built off the availability of the school and and the needs of the Navy at the moment as well. Uh, but there is opportunities there, uh, and our our senior enlisted advisor shares those routinely with the senior enlisted advisors for all the other services as well. Uh, same with our justice school. They talk to your AFJAG schools. Oh, cool. I'm gonna keep that in my goals. Go right. to Navy course. That's right. Do you have uh, how many justice uh, naval justice schools do you have? So we have uh, Newport, which is our headquarters. Uh, we have a detachment in San Diego, a detachment in Norfolk, and then a branch office in Charlottesville at the Army JAG School, uh, which really does a lot of the clamo stuff. Um, operational law, uh, lessons learned, that type of right. stuff. Okay, we have the one at Maxwell Air Force Base, Alabama. I really Which I think is, I don't know. I feel like that's an Air Force thing. We like to keep, you know, traditional live and you got one way into the Air Force if you're enlisted. You got one way into the Jack Corps. I think it's cool though because it's almost like a reunion, like every time you go back for a course, because um, you usually like people kind of like, you know, make it through the ranks and different positions um, at the same time. Some don't. But so when you go back for courses, someone who you would have gone to like your tech school six years ago, you're like, hey, what's up? I haven't seen you in six years, you know. So it's like a reunion every time. It's it's pretty awesome. And you get to meet like other people around the Jack Corps. Um, sister services if they go and then just like like if you're pcsing your new bosses you know new paralegals it's pretty cool so yeah you guys are definitely have a much larger community than we do but i, <laughs> I remember when i was there like everybody knew each other i was like man <laughs> we're only like 500 something strong in the legal men and there's still legal men that i meet and i'm like hi nice to meet you like where have you been <laughs> I think because we have so many courses and we're just at the school so often that, yeah, that's, I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it is. No, absolutely. Um, so I kind of want to talk about some of the specific tasks that we do, right? I want to touch on paralegal utilization because I want to know what things are you really, you know, are you doing that compared to what an attorney work product would be, right? So. And I'm talking about maybe, you know, proof analysis, uh, how much case research do you do, um, how much involvement do you have in that process as far as who gets, you know, how much of a say do paralegals have in the, in the justice, in those decisions that are being made. And also, because we, we have a program that generates, you know, where we put Article 15s, NJP, who do court martials, but what do you, what kind of program do you have? Do you have a program that generates NJPs or a program that generates uh, uh, the charge sheet or something like that? So, <laughs> this is where we get jealous of the Air Force. <laughs> so, we do everything by hand. Um, oh, no. Not literally by hand. We're not writing these things out with pencil and paper. A typewriter. Uh, but our typewriters, you know, we still have typewriters out there. They come in handy. Us too. For, 
Um, but we don't have any magical system that creates the charge for us. We write every charge uh, by hand from directly out of the MCM or the bench book every time. Um, and every time it's on a new report sheet or new charge sheet, uh, there's nothing that, you know, retrieves the, the pay information or anything like that for us. We have to go to personnel to get it. Uh, so you guys do have a lot of efficiencies when it comes to that process. Um, but yeah, we, we do everything by hand. Uh, as far as paralegal utilization, um, so I, I joke, and you know, this isn't 100% accurate, but it, it fits most situations. Uh, a paralegal can do everything an attorney can, except for the three A's, argue, advise, and make agreement. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I like that. Know, with the, with I'm going to write that down. <laughs> supervision, like paralegal, like depending on their level of experience, should be able to do everything that the attorney can. Um, and, you know, they, they did go to law school to learn their, their role for, you know, a solid three years. Uh, and, you know, we only spent, you know, eight months at justice school. Um, but, you know, through like actively communicating with the attorney as far as like, hey, I don't know how to do this, or can you explain this legal concept to me? Uh, we do learn quite a bit from them on the job uh, and they're really able to mold you know how we think uh, in, in our particular billets um, most are you know our billet structure is kind of different from the air force uh, so 55 percent of our rate is or our community in general is with the fleet in some capacity uh, whether they're at a staff command embedded on a ship or otherwise um, only 45% of our community is within Navy Legal Service Command, which is where our trial, defense, uh, legal assistance offices are. And we also have a, a unit called Command Services, uh, which isn't necessarily any, any one person's SJA. It's basically if uh, a command does not have an SJA, they only have a legal officer, they would call Command Services for help. Uh, but within there, they have the SJA for the region and the SJA for each of the installations. Um, but paralegals are really empowered to do, uh, you know, quite a bit in our community. Uh, and we're leaned on quite a bit by our, our attorneys to do so. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we don't have, you know, at the end of the day, the decision as to which way a case goes doesn't lie with us and it rarely lies with the attorney. It's really, you know, embedded in, the command structure, um, but our point of view is is pretty important. Uh, there's there's one case in particular that I remember because it was when I was on a ship um, that the paralegal on the case actually pointed out the impossibility of the government's argument of you could get from point A on the front of the ship to point B on the back of the ship uh, within five minutes or so. Uh, you know, every hour on the hour on a ship, you know, story time. Uh, every hour on the hour on the ship, uh, a bell will ring over the uh, intercom system. Uh, it happens on the half hour as well. Uh, so his alibi had said, hey, the eight o'clock bell went off and he was in the front of the ship. Uh, and the incident for sure happened at 8.05. Uh, but there was no way for them to get from the front of an aircraft carrier to the back of an aircraft carrier at a five deck difference, so five ladder wells, 
uh, within five minutes. An aircraft carrier is about a thousand feet long uh, and pretty tight spaces to navigate through. Uh, and none of the judge advocates had realized this. The defense counsel hadn't realized this. The trial counsel hadn't realized it. None of us on ship staff had realized it because uh, it was just a minute detail. Uh, but the paralegal on the defense team was able to speak up and tell their attorney like, hey, I noticed this uh, and it might be pretty important. And that's what broke the case. Uh, Ellen, one. Yeah, I mean, that, I think it has a lot to do with your relationship with your, with your judge advocates, right? So if you, if you like to speak up, uh, I think you'll do well as long as you, you bring knowledge to the table and you, you bring like your version of, of events, uh, in a well-communicated way. Um, and it, I think most of the judges or, or judge advocates I've worked with or for have, have usually respected the opinion as long as it comes with a, like some sort of suggestion or a, a, a path to why you think that way. So your analysis, I guess is probably the best way to put it. Um, and I, I'm not sure how the Air Force works. I'm sure it's very similar to ours and, and as far as when attorneys come in, right? So they don't go through a lot of the process. And I know tech artist, she had talked about, you know, you all have a pipeline um, and that's been effective on the Air Force side. For us, as Chief said earlier, that one of our big things that we've got is, is the fleet experience for us, specifically ones when it comes to ship stuff. Um, because a lot of the attorneys, right, they might have went, they went bachelor's and they went to law school or they, you know, worked somewhere else and finally went to law school. And then they might even have been an attorney out in the civilian world. And they're like, yeah, I, I want to go in the military. So then they come in, they do a little bit of training, right, to kind of gear them up to put a uniform on. But their experience is it, not, not just, you know, what's firefighting a ship look like, but like, how do I, am I a naval officer first or am I a JAG first, right? The right answer is obviously you're a naval officer first, ma'am, sir. Like that's, that's not always uh, easy for, for judge advocates to understand. So the enlisted side, they, we bring, I mean, it might be sound small, but it's, it's a big thing. Like Chief said, how does, how does this actually work? Are we going to charge this? Okay. Is it, is it feasible that this event occurred in this way? No. Why? Okay. They'll, they'll listen to you as long as you, you know, you put your analysis in and you have to think like an attorney. And I think good attorneys, first train you on that and then expect it. Um, and they hold the bar pretty high. So, uh, yeah, they were, I've, I've always had a pretty open door uh, policy relationship with most of the, any of the, the senior leadership that I've worked with. I mean, in some of the lower ranking folks uh, that I've, you know, have had in, in shops that I've ran, I've, I've always encouraged that as well. I think if they encourage it at NJS at justice school, like you, if you know that you're correct and you have analysis to back you up and speak up because if your LN2, your E5 isn't willing to speak up and set things straight and they hold on to that, you're, you're going to be a weaker shot for it and have uh, less success in your cases for it. So I, that's, that's pushed pretty heavily. Yeah. I had, uh, I had always struggled with, you know, articulating why I thought a certain way, um, you know, I'm not afraid to speak my mind, that's that's for sure. But, you know, trying to convince my attorney why uh, was always kind of difficult for me. Uh, but, you know, I did go to, like I said, the law office management course, uh, and we had the opportunity there to hear from your TJAG. Uh, and he was talking about, you know, 
how staff judge advocates really earn the right to make a recommendation. Um, mm -hmm. And he, he basically gave this list and I'm, I'll read it back to you because it, it's really simple and it just kind of opened my eyes because it's really the same thing we should be able to do to our attorneys. Uh, but you know, you give the facts about the case, right? Uh, you give the range of options uh, and then the legal rationale for each of those options. Uh, and then you can make your recommendation. Once they've heard all of the, the other three, uh, th then they've kind of, you've built up that uh, rapport with them to be able to have that right to make a recommendation. Uh, and without hearing the facts or any of the legal rationale first, if you just blurt out your recommendation and they don't know why you're making that recommendation, they're never gonna believe you or they're just gonna go with their gut instinct of what they learned at uh, you know, legal officer course or senior officer uh, leadership course. Uh, so that, that kind of goes the hand in hand with how we uh, deal with our attorneys is we, we should be doing the same thing they're trying to do for their uh, commanders because uh, that's the only way that they, they'll really understand how we're thinking the way we are and why. No, yeah, it's, it's, I'd say it's pretty similar in the Air Force. Um, we do have a lot of young paralegals. We also have a lot of young JAGs. So um, I'm finally getting to the point to where JAGs are younger than me now coming in. So um, over my time, I've seen that, you know, these young JAGs really rely heavily um, on, you know, the experienced paralegals in the office. Uh, maybe uh, mostly because we tend to stay at bases longer than the Jags. Well, our Jags leave the office every two years. They're rotating in and rotating out. So we tend to keep a pretty young crew around quite often. Um, minus, you know, your section chiefs, they might have a little bit more experience, but it really does go hand in hand with your, you know, chief of military justice and your NCIC of military justice to help out these younger new Jags. Even some of the experienced JAGs don't have as much experience as some paralegals will, um, just depending on, you know, your experience and your time in. Um, we're really uh, justice heavy in the Air Force. We, well, we, we tell everybody military justice is job one. So that's what we like focus on as far as training. We do have training in, you know, gen law. There's some ops law stuff. Um, it's just not a lot of stuff that we see often. We do a lot of justice and our paralegals, you know, are expected to rotate fairly quickly through those other sections and then, you know, get your butt in military justice and kick it into high gear. So um, we tend to get a lot of experience in that realm. So, yeah, they they rely on that. And then also, like you were mentioning, um, they don't have the enlisted side experience. So when I was at Lackland, which is, um, you know, our our basic training is there. We have a lot of technical training schools there too. So they really relied on us enlisted to kind of, you know, give our experience and kind of lay out different cases, scenarios for them because we had a lot of BMT cases and tech school cases. So yeah, pretty similar. Absolutely. And <laughs> it's, you know that you picked up all of those things from LOMSI that that also goes to show that the, the course is effective and, and especially the message the message that gets shared there definitely resonates as well. Is it working essentially? 
Uh, yeah, so we can go into the shop. Uh, like I can go in to do uh, to do stuff uh, to help out. Um, uh, but yeah, they're they're still you, know, you kind of wipe your and wipe your way out. You know, you got to wear masks and all that stuff. So yeah, they're they're trying to keep that kind of fifty percent thing going. Uh, but yeah, so I but yeah, mostly teleworking. Truthfully, they'll send me stuff. I jump on my laptop and uh, we'll knock out taskers and stuff. I I know the the LPO, the leading petty officer over there. Uh, pretty well so she's she and i have a good relationship okay and chief greener are you mostly teleworking as well yeah um so i've been teleworking since basically st patrick's day um we haven't been back in the office since um but you know being at headquarters it's kind of like there, there's really not a heck of a lot we actually need to be there in person for um Part of our role with DCAP is like, we're supposed to travel a lot. So most of our job, we, we need to have the ability to be remote. But uh, I mean, this whole whole COVID thing kind of made us realize like just how much we don't need to actually physically be there. That's true. How's it working over there, Sergeant Graciana? Um, It's good. So probably for like, I want to say the first month and a half since March, since the whole thing happened, um, we were completely um, out of the office. The only time we would come in is if we like really need to. Um, and then we were put into team A and team B. So pretty much our office is split completely by expertise and personnel like count. So me and my chief are on two separate days. So I come in to work Monday, Wednesdays, and Friday mornings. And then my the other team will come in Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Friday afternoons to help eliminate the spread of COVID if hit our office. But yeah, we got, you know, bleach and wipes and sanitizer and we have to wear a mask anytime we're like, you know, my right here. Anytime we're, we can't keep the six feet distance. But um, on the days I'm not in, I'm teleworking. So I have a laptop I take home. Um, so yeah, the only time I'm actually in here or actually have to be here really is to file stuff, which I'm doing right now, destroying records, um, and reviewing rots, any like hard copy stuff that I have to review. So, yeah, we've had, I mean, we've been teleworking to some great success, really. Um, it's crazy how you realize how many things you can actually accomplish remotely and then that's i'll have the phone ringing all the time that's right <laughs> that's right and they have to find new innovative ways to reach out to us uh, and innovation is just kicking in tremendously since covid19 hit and we've been forced to <clears throat> to telework right? a lot of new ideas a lot of new initiatives have happened uh, because of this so <clears throat> it has been an interesting uh, experience and a, an interesting experiment um, for all of us and just the capabilities that we have um, to continue being lethal, uh, that lethality that right. is so much talked about in the national defense strategies. So. Mm -hmm. All right, so I have one more, one more question and, and essentially one more topic, and it's mainly centered around your duties and responsibilities and your life in a fleet or on a ship. So what does that look like? Um, do you have, and it, the one question that I had is when you're talking about military justice on a ship is, do you have 
Can you do courts on a ship? So not not very often. Um, so summary court martials, easy day. Uh, you can do those anywhere. Uh, special and general courts martial, if they're contested, uh, rarely would they ever occur on a ship. Um, most recently, we did have a general court martial held on one of our carriers uh, while at sea, uh, but it, it was a plea agreement case. Uh, so there weren't any logistics to really deal with uh, as far as you know getting people on board. Uh, but there's really very limited space on any ship, let alone a carrier. I mean, carrier's pretty large, but the amount of room you need for trial counsel, defense counsel, the judge, bailiff, the, the accused and all that uh, is it's pretty limited. Um, plus if the, the ship's at sea, you know, you have the added factor of getting a military judge because although we have a person on our ship called a judge, they're not a military judge. They're just called judge because it's short for Judge Advocate General. Uh, a JAG almost was too easy. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, each of our ships do, uh, our carriers, each of them have a brig. Uh, some of our amphibs have a brig. Uh, so there is an ability to put somebody in confinement. Uh, I mean, we really used that back in the day when bread and water was still around. Uh, but, you know, since then, uh, you know, it's it's not all that often we get to use them unless it's a pretrial confinement because something happened underway. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so, yeah, we, so my experience on the ship, uh, that we've used the brig a couple times, uh, our, but it was for personnel that like you're underway for a long period of time that they will just, they just won't stop. They're just, they're just, they're just, you know what? I'm not long for the Navy and I just, I don't really care if I, you know, we do restriction and things like that. Um, which is tough on a ship. It just, it just is the restricted. I mean, I, I'm not, it's, it's tough to be on restriction on a ship. I'm sure chief can attest to like, I've never been on restriction either is he, but, uh, we we deal with that a lot, and uh, it, it, it ain't easy, <laughs> especially underway, just because with your ship work and all that. Um, yeah, as far as like being in a fleet, like on a ship, uh, yeah, we don't summaries like Chief said. Most of our stuff that's court martialable, uh, that's that's gonna NCIS sometimes, but most of the time is gonna be involved, you know, and then that's gonna go through the local uh, trial shop or real so. Uh, regional legal service office uh, and they're going to kind of do an analysis of it and look at it and then get with the convening authority which depending on who the you know what level of court marshal you're going to either be the skipper of the ship or it could be uh, the carrier strike group the admiral uh, if it's a general type situation but yeah our our big day-to-day -day is njp or captain's mass we do it every week we have Disciplinary. I don't know if what the uh, Air Force has akin to what I'm about to say, but we have what we call DRB, so Disciplinary Review Board, which is just it's kind of a fact-finding body that the Chiefs Mess will use to uh, address misconduct. Uh, so it's kind of it's it's advantageous for a couple of reasons. Uh, and what it is is you usually have like a panel, which is going to be on a carrier is going to be Master Chiefs and Senior Chiefs, at least on ours. Uh, and then a chair, so there's going to be one master chief and then a couple E8s and E9s. And then, honestly, 
they our our CMC, our command master chief, keeps a pretty open door policy with COVID that changed things uh, quite a bit uh, on the carrier um, as far as if we're going to do that and how we're going to do that. And I think that'll probably change that going forward as well. But the mess kind of comes in. They ask questions like, why this? You know, why did this happen? Why do you think this this was a bad idea? Um, suspect or the accused, we'll call them, is they're always read their rights. We go through all that with them uh, before that. Then we go on to X. So that's held on Mondays. On Wednesdays, we have executive officer inquiry, which is the next step. And that's when the XO um, has a chat with them in the chain of command. Some XOs chat a little louder than others. Uh, just depends depends what's going on in their personality. And then they make a recommendation and it'll go up to captain's master NJP and then they they, they stand with this uh, in front of the skipper. Uh, but yeah, that's a big part of our, that's a weekly thing because we're the ones that prep those packages. We're the ones that do uh, the briefs for our department head, our 04 uh, JAG, who's then going to take and like I said, our I've had great relationships, working relationships with my uh, judge advocates. He, uh, our lieutenant commander, takes our analysis of it and essentially goes through it, verifies it, and gives it. To, that's what he reads to the CO. So, it, what our work product is going directly to the commanding officer and at times the admiral. So, uh, we do that. Like I said, we brief the sailors, so we're we're usually the good news folks. <laughs> so. They have to come talk to us uh, when they do get in trouble. Like I said, we're the conduit between the chain of command up to sailor uh, and the kind of the process. Uh, so they'll come. Uh, we'll brief them. We'll go through their 31 Bravo rights. We'll tell, tell them what they're accused of, um, what their rights are uh, after our meeting, all that stuff, their appeal stuff. Uh, we go over everything. Um, but that's just the job part. Life on a ship is obviously... Only about 50, 50 to sixty percent about that job, right? So every everybody on a ship's a firefighter. Every single person on a ship is a firefighter. So you do a lot of DC damage control, uh, force protection stuff on the bigger the bigger uh, ships. Not everybody's involved in force protection. Uh, the smaller ships they are, uh, but there's that. Then there's three M. Uh, so maintenance, which is a big. Uh, it's not as big in a legal shop, but we do a lot of that too, which is a whole separate program. It's just about upkeep of equipment. So you do uh, what, what, what we always say in our shop. So there's like the legal side of it. And then there's a sailor with a capital S stuff uh, that we do. And you, you gotta be good at both. Uh, usually people that leave a carrier, at least in my experience, uh, usually have a, a pretty, even though you're not doing courts martial and you're not doing some of it, they have done a lot of legal assistance and a lot of they can get a good work product out in a short amount of time because they don't really have a choice and it's a high stress environment. So especially with COVID going on now, I can tell you on the ship I came from uh, just kind of how, how that played out uh, was fairly intense. So uh, you just got to adapt. You still have, you still have, it's a customer service based thing, right? So you still have a client, you still have a customer base. We were still doing power of attorney for people just over the phone, come in, verify their ID, have them sign get them out the door because they, they had sick families at home and stuff they hadn't need, needed to take care of. Right. So we're, we have to be that, that continuity uh, for the crew. And I, I think that uh, we succeeded in that legal shops are, are all, all about that. They're all about the customer and the client. So, uh, but yeah, that's, that's a, a quick snapshot kind of what we do. And I really like what you said about, you know, the big S obviously because you know, you're, you guys are as sailors first and we are airmen first and, and Marines, they'll definitely tell you that they are Marines. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, 
Yeah. There's not even, that's not even a question as to whether they're Marines or not, right? They're a rifle. Every Marine a rifle. I mean, that is as simple as it gets. And then same thing with uh, the Army. They're soldiers. But I think, and I think we're still working on this culture, but with the Air Force, it's easy to detach yourself from being an airman uh, just because we don't have that connection uh, with, you know, a lot of times we sometimes don't have that connection with the mission. Um, just like the Navy does if you're, if you're on a ship, right? Like, and you have to do all these duties. You're reminded every single day that you, right. are, first and foremost, you're a sailor. And same thing with the other services. But there could be some airmen that spend their whole career in the Air Force who've never touched a plane, you know what I mean? Or who never go, never go near an airplane. And I, you know, I've deployed a couple of times, so I've been on a C-130 and I've, and I've been on uh, KC-135s and, and different uh, and different aircraft. But, uh, you know, so that's just one uh, one thing that it's important, I think, to still make sure that we are harping on the fact that we are airmen first. And we have, a, I mean, we have an airmen's creed that is, uh, that's amazing. It reminds us that, you know, of our responsibilities as airmen, but I think it's just one thing that maybe we need to, we have to do a little bit better. Yeah, and um, people tend to joke because, uh, so our professional military education, you know, we have leadership school for, you know, and you make different ranks, I'm sure you guys do too. Um, so we, it's a joke across Air Force is like, oh, you're going, you're going to airman leadership school, you're going to get reblued. That's like your, you're becoming an airman again because you kind of forgot that like you get so sucked into your day-to-day, you know, paralegal job or whatever job you have in the air force that you, you kind of forget that there's people out there working on planes and F-16s shooting down other, you know, other aircraft. And, you know, there's drones out there watching these, you know, you don't really realize that that's something that others are doing every day. So I think especially for the Air Force paralegals, it can be hard for us to kind of get that tie back to the bigger mission just because we're not on a ship every day like you guys are. We don't have to do, you know, that maintenance and we don't pretty much have to keep ourselves alive (laughs) out at sea. So for the most part, we have additional duties, but it's nothing like that. I mean, we clean our building here like once a month. Um, (laughs) We have equipment custodians, you know, safety and all that stuff. But those those jobs usually go up for the NCOs and stuff like that. So the younger airmen. So I always try to tell them, like, consider yourself lucky. Like, appreciate everything that you have right now. And, you know, don't forget that you are an airman. And there's other stuff that you need to be doing within the Air Force. So I know uh, my last superintendent, he harped on that. He's like, he's like, you know, you're you're an airman first. There's a reason why U.S. Air Force is bigger than your occupational badge on your uniform is because you are an airman first. And we're, we're trying to get that culture back. Trying. But it can be hard. So. Yeah, I think we have it for the most part. It's just certain professions. It's, it's hard to make that connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the DRV, you mentioned Ellen won the DRV. That's something that caught my interest. Uh, yeah. I don't <laughs> think that... Yeah. So, so hang on. So, because we have, and we also have certain timelines, right? Where where NJP has to happen. You guys have that. So, if someone committed an offense, and you find out that someone committed an offense, that's Article 15. Or I'm not sure what are some things that happen in the in the on a ship that are automatic. Captain Mask. 
Um, so, yeah, so for us, as far as timeline goes, we really stick with the MCM uh, as far as uh, kind of the, the two-year thing goes, but it's it's not just about that. It has to do with it, you know, pre, misconduct of previous command uh, that you can, there's some, uh, you can get into the weeds a little bit on that. For us, a lot of the cases we see are going to be, you know, drug pops. They're going to be uh, what we call gun decking maintenance, where you signed like you did a piece of maintenance and you didn't complete it. Um, some assaults, things like that, but not everything, not everything necessarily warrants because the point of military justice, right, is to be, to maintain good order and discipline, but in a quick and efficient way. And that's the reason commanders are given the ability to do that. So on a ship, especially, you know, you have, you need to get stuff taken care of, uh, quickly and efficiently outside of military justice, just for the ship, the ship never sleeps, right? It's always going. There's not, you know, turn the turn the office lights on and we go home. There's, it's always going. There's night check and day check, uh, so it's it's always awake. But in order to expedite the process and give the accused kind of a fair shake, because NJPs, you know, captain's mess, those go, those will go on your record and that can hurt you in some ways. Uh, certainly, if you want to go forward in your career, it's not ending, but it can it can hold you back. Uh, for maybe some promotions later and things like that. So DRBs maybe keep things at a level where it doesn't go in your official record. It's really just a counseling. You're just being counseled by the chief's mess, usually your leadership, your, you know, your khaki leadership. Uh, but there's, there's rarely an officer allowed uh, or they have to be asked to be there. So the chief, uh, chief Greener can probably speak, speak to this, that uh, there's always a curious judge advocate really wants to, I just, I just want to see what they're doing. I just want to see what it's all about. And it's, it's very much a chief's mess thing The the only, and all the, the cases that I've done both in Sigonella for all the tenant commands and on the ship, the only person below the rank of E7 that I've uh, ever seen other than a witness or accused be allowed in is the legal man. Uh, because our role in the DRB is to, kind of take notes and make sure everything's going right, but also to ensure that the the accused understands why they're there and that the board understands why they are there, right? So that we kind of stay inside the lines of, uh, okay, this is what you were read your rights for because you were UA for two days. We don't get into things outside of that, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it's a very helpful tool in that it, allow stuff that can maybe be hand, handled expeditiously at a lower level uh, to be handled, right? So it doesn't need to, the XO, busy person, commanding officer of an aircraft carrier, very busy person, right? So they don't, if you have a, a docket of 15 people, uh, that means that <laughs> you probably got a bigger issue uh, going on. So try to weed some of the, the maybe, I don't want to say lower level, but there's some stuff that could be counseled. Uh, try to do that at DRB and XOI. So by the time you're up to the CO, it's only miscounting that truly deserves to be there. Plus, sometimes, you know, I hate to say it, but uh, not everybody tells the truth all the time. So maybe some underlying facts come out at uh, DRB and XOI. Um, some people choose not to speak at all, though. That's their right. They, they come in, they say, I want to invoke my 31 Bravos. I'm not going to talk. So in that case, it's usually going forward. So Again, just on the DRB, just to understand the full process. So mm -hmm. someone commits an offense that could potentially be an Article 15 or NJP, right? Correct. 
then they meet the the next step is to meet the DRB? Uh, so n normally, yes. There's some stuff if it's very, depending on the person, let's say they've been to captain's mask a few times or it's for a type of misconduct. So like uh, usually um, if there's say some assault stuff, sexual assault stuff, uh, any domestic violence issues, things like that, that normally are handled outside of the ship anyway. Uh, but let's say for whatever reason they, they find themselves in there, we're probably not going to have those go to DRB and XOI. They're probably going to, the skipper is going to sit with the chief of the legal office with the SJA and they're going to hash it out with the real so on shore side. That's normally, in my chief, chief might've had a, a different experience, uh, but that's thus far over this past year. That's what I've seen. I, I think that's a good way forward just because those issues are pretty sensitive. So. Yeah. One of the ways to, you know, think about DRB is it's really about kind of not necessarily delegation of authority. It's more of empowerment to the, the senior enlisted, um, you know, as you probably know, there are some senior enlisted that are really good at finding out uh, or figuring out somebody's story and how it doesn't match up um, or how much it does match up or discover some other set of facts that maybe this was a, a small drug ring, but it's a big drug ring. Um, but that's basically where what happens down there is, you know, we scrutinize the story um, version of events that either side is telling uh, if the accused doesn't want to speak, okay, great. They're more than welcome to not speak, uh, but they'll continue on, uh, you know, trying to find out more information. Typically, before DRB happens, you know, there's some level of investigation that's already occurred, whether that's by the ship security department, uh, a preliminary uh, inquiry officer under the JAGMAN, or maybe even NCIS for more of the serious stuff. Um, but when it's, you know, things that really impact the morale and performance of the ship, um, one, there, it's a tool to really drive home the importance of why they should not be doing whatever it is that they're accused of doing. Uh, so like the big, big one is like larceny. Like that is the quickest way to kill the morale in any unit is for somebody to be stealing some, somebody's stuff. Uh, you know, another one's a l about lying about doing their job. Those are really the, the top two that aren't like violent in nature that can really kill uh, the morale or performance of a unit. Uh, so, you know, the, the chief's mess will go and uh, figure out those, those facts. And un under circum certain circumstances, uh, the commanding officer might delegate to the, the command mass chief to handle those cases with either extra military instruction or uh, allow the command mass chief to make a recommendation for a particular punishment. Um, that of course goes to the executive officer and then to the commanding officer with the commanding officer making full, the you know, full decision. Um, there have been times where the, the command mass chief says, hey, I wanna handle this at my level, uh, but the commanding officer insists, no, it's, it's still coming to me. Send me whatever you found out. Uh, and the command mass chief standing next to the CEO at, at Captain's Mass and will typically tell him what happened at DRB. Uh, so it's pretty unique to the Navy. Uh, it's really just driven by efficiencies. Um, you know, I, the Marines have things that are similar, but uh, you know, they, they're also a, a lot more vo boisterous, I guess, might be a good word for it. Uh, <laughs> um, 
but yeah, uh, there's similarities in each of the services, but I think the DRV is really one thing that's pretty unique to the Navy. Absolutely. Well, that's, I think, all the questions that I had. I'm not sure if uh, Sergeant Graciano, do you have anything, anything additional? Um, I had one, but I don't want it to take up too much time. Um, I know we're all working through this post MJ 16 new UCMJ rewrite thing. Um, I know it's taken a toll on our processes and procedures. For the most part, I think we've got it pretty pretty figured out. But I was wondering how it has impacted, you know, maybe some of the senior um, legal men in your branch or because I know for for us it was like oh my gosh I knew my job now I have to relearn my job but yeah so how has it impacted you all oh, did has. you want to go first uh so truthfully I, I can only speak from my experience it hasn't uh because because the ship concentrates like what because of our kind of limitations on the ship a lot of the MJ-16 stuff was you know, for us, it was very courts martial heavy um, and how those are processed. And as Chief alluded to before, we don't do a ton of those. Uh, so for us, bread and water, because, you know, people love to threaten that. <laughs> I don't want to say threaten, but like bring that one up. Like, hey, you get to do this, bread and water it is, you know, that went away. But uh, for for, our, for the ship the ship going piece of the rate, not huge differences. Uh Chief, because of his his experience on, on the trial side uh, right now, can probably speak more to big changes that they've seen as far as like post trial and that stuff goes. But for for us, not in a huge huge way. There has been some, you know, certainly uh, the the reorganization of the articles and some of the addition of that, um, uh, particularly because we're at where we're at right now with the COVID thing. Uh, Article eighty four is is. <laughs> One that you you know you might hear about some more, which is wouldn't even wasn't even really it's new, right? And it just came out just in time, I guess. Uh, but yeah, it's I we don't do a ton of the trial stuff, so I, I can only speak to just just our our viewpoint. It hasn't changed a ton, other than relearning how to charge things. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, I I would kind of echo the same. I mean, military justice is can be a pretty perishable skill. Um, and when it changes and you haven't been doing it for a while, I mean, it's hard to you know, forget what you already knew. Um, we do a, a certain amount of refresher type stuff for people that are coming back into the community, uh, military justice community, uh, litigation community, I should say. Um, pretty much just to re-explain, you know, the changes in pre and post trial processes uh, the creation of the the no BCD special court martial, which we all have a nickname for, but we're not allowed to say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, it, it's just really about uh, reminding people. I mean, you'll still catch people every now and then saying PTA instead of plea agreement, uh, and then you just kind of nudge like, "Hey, it's it's, it's a plea agreement," and they're like, "Oh yeah." Um, <laughs> but overall, it hasn't been too. Um, too rigorous of a change or stressful or anything like that. It's really just about paying attention to the details uh, and just reminding each other, you know, hey, that that changed. Uh, that changed a couple of years ago. Um, so it, yeah, it, it's 
not terrible, but it's not most ideal. I wish the uh, yeah. articles hadn't had changed as much as they did, because uh, relearning the new numbering system is interesting. <laughs> the favorites are always in the same spot, like 92. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. How has it affected you all? Like, what have you just, your post-trial stuff, or? So, um... So whatever it was rolling out, um, I was actually in the middle of coming from the defense community back into the base legal office, which is the government side. Um, and in the defense community, you kind of get a little detached from that day-to-day -day processing of those procedures because you're not doing all that paperwork. You're pretty much just working on, you know, defense theories and helping your clients through the process and all that. So when I was PCSing back, they're like, oh, yeah, this MJ-16 thing's rolling out. I'm like, what? Um, I don't understand. It was like that for many of my peers too. So we were all just kind of like, okay, uh, blind leading the blind here. We don't know what's going on. They did have trainings that came out, but I think until we actually were doing it and seeing it, it was really hard to understand. Um, we kicked it off. So my office and uh, was actually the first ever to do the very first MJ-16 trial for the Air Force. So I feel grateful for that. So we kind of kicked off MJ-16 with that trial. So um, thankfully, it was an easy one, plea agreement. Um, so it kind of helped, you know, give that buffer. All right, we know what we're doing now. Um, but I honestly love the new process. I didn't think I was going to like it, but post-trial is so much easier now. It's so much faster. Um, it's efficient. It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, so at first it was a struggle just trying to, you know, they, they're they still rolling out with like guidance memorandums, changing the AFIs, the instructions to kind of help us work through all the different kinks. But at first it was a struggle, but now um, being, you know, a year and a half in, it's pretty good. I like it. <laughs> well, this was awesome. I learned so much about the Navy right now. And uh, <laughs> yeah. I know that, well, not just the Navy in general, but obviously about the Navy legal men rates and, and that, you know, for our lingo, the career field and how you do things and i don't know maybe we can look at some of those practices and see uh you know i don't know if something about an idea uh, i love that drb thing we would do so <laughs> much less 15s if we had a drb uh, that's <laughs> right. Right. it really the, does help weed them out it does. Uh, and just the involvement of the enlisted force in that process i think it's really important i think in the air force is very officer heavy i mean there's a first sergeant who's kind of in the middle of it all you know as far as the liaison between the legal office and the commander uh, but really it's a it's a it's typically an officer heavy uh, process so i like involving the enlisted and the senior NCOs in that process to kind of talk and, and make those type of recommendations so but yeah, no, we learned a lot and I definitely want to thank, you know, uh, all three of you for the flexibility. Uh, we went kind of long on this chat, but it was definitely productive and informative. And uh, if there's anything else that we missed as far as the Air Force, we could certainly do part two at some other time. <laughs> <laughs> I might um, take you up on that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs>
that's right if there's any other information that left out and i can also get some other facts because i know i was kind of uh, i've been out of the career field so i i was uh I, w- i was a pme instructor for three and a half years and i just got back about three months ago into the okay. career field so they might be you know and i knew a lot of things but then you kind of tend to forget and there's a lot of things that you know so i'll make sure that we get those those facts straight as far as the retraining process and everything and the, and the timelines for that as well but Uh, but thank you. Yeah, thank you for. Uh, yeah, thanks for, for having us. Thank for Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah.